Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR, talent, and leadership communities to you. For more episodes and the latest articles covering what's new in the world of work, visit hrgazette.com, subscribe and follow us on social media. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum. Twitter has been hitting the headlines over the past few days following Elon Musk's purchase of the social media giant for $44 billion. The world's richest man closed his blockbuster purchase of the social media service, propelling Twitter into a new era. Now then, while some fans of Musk, who's a self-described free speech absolutist, look forward to a future of more expansive dialogue, critics suggest that Musk wants to open the platform up to everyone, and that even includes controversial personalities such as former President Trump and Kanye West. And some also question the impact of Musk's new Content Moderation Council. Musk and his team wasted no time terminating the employment of some of the most senior figures over at Twitter, and More junior employees have shared their concerns about what lies ahead and how Twitter's focus and company culture could change, creating a work environment perhaps more similar to Tesla. One former Twitter leader has been particularly active in the media over the past few days. Bruce Daisley, former VP at Twitter and author of Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, 30 Hacks for Bringing Joy to Your Job, has appeared on the Times Radio, Channel 4 News and LBC to offer his take on the purchase of Twitter and what it could mean for Twitter's employees. A key figure at Twitter between 2012 and 2020, Bruce was Twitter's most senior employee outside of the US in his role as VP across Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Bruce's passion for improving work led to him creating the podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat to make work better for all. Earlier this month, I sat down with Bruce to record an episode of the HR Chat podcast In the conversation, Bruce shared some of his experiences from his time at YouTube and at Twitter. I hope you enjoy this chat I had with Bruce. Hey, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So beyond my reintroduction there, Bruce, why don't you take a minute or so and tell our listeners a bit more about yourself? Yeah, I'm obsessed with the intersection of work and our lives, really. I I know that for me, um, the moments that my job has been happy it's made my life happy and not that that should be a be all and end all for any of us but work does play a pretty significant contributing partner um in our in our happiness really so i've i'm obsessed with that and you know the the stuff that i find myself exploring is just how any of us can get to enjoying our jobs more how can we uh, find ourselves feeling more motivated or connected with our jobs and you know how can we avoid the pitfalls that are becoming increasingly common about burnout and about exhaustion (laughs) about burnout and exhaustion in our jobs okay we're going to get into we're going to get into the weeds we're going to get into the details later but for now at a high level bruce what, what are some of the factors that you believe define a company's culture Company culture has got a number of key pillars to it. The the really critical thing that I would emphasize is that if you look at writing from the US, it seems to be divergent with the rest of the world. Quite often, um, culture discussions in the US and organizations that I've worked with in the US, they, they think about culture as like the wiring document of an electric circuit circuit, or the, the, um, the rules of the road that you might drive on, who gives way to whom and 
and in what circumstances. Culture is something more than that, though, for the rest of the world. It's about a, a degree of cohesion. It's about the emotional connection. It's about those sort of intangible aspects of mojo that help connect us and unite us. You know, when a culture is working well, then there's this visceral sense that we're all in it together. So it's not just the rules of who gives way to whom and and for for what reasons, but rather, you know, why it feels special around here. I'm not saying that that isn't something that isn't felt in North America. However, a lot of the leading writers are often from the tech sector and they in North America in um, the US and they often neglect that. So I think culture, when it works well, has got some intangible quality to it some attitudinal quality to it and that's what makes us really fondly recollect there's a really critical stat that i think a few of us are aware of that the thing that best predicts someone engage someone's engagement with their job is whether they've got a best friend at work and yet when it comes down to thinking about workplace culture we often brush over that but it's those um relationship aspects that really help there was a really wonderful and she was American researcher called Sigal Barside, who died this year. And uh, and she used to talk about good cultures feeling like companionate love, meaning that when you're in a good culture, you've got a, a fondness and affection, a, a warmth to your colleagues that transcends the normal colleague relationship. And she observed it in firefighters. She observed it in members of sports teams. She observed it across the whole workforce. I think that for me is the is the the cornerstone of great workplace culture. I'd love to get your take on on the impact of uh, hybrid work of of uh, remote employees over the last few years of course due to the pandemic uh, a lot of people have uh, been working from home full time or now it's maybe they go to the office once or twice a week can that dilute a company's culture and if so how most definitely. I think it's created a semi-detached relationship with work for a lot of people where we've witnessed this in the increase in resignation rates. A lot of uh, people that I've spoken to have said, you know, I used to think I was part of a really special culture. Now I realise to some extent that was blinding me to the fact that I wasn't paid what I was worth. I've moved on. I've got a new job. I don't like my colleagues as much, but I'm earning significantly more. And I think, you know, the reason why we've seen an increase in the resignation rate is because of that, because people have recognised that actually, you know, they no longer have people who they would consider to be best friends at work. But from where they are in their life right now, that's a decision they're willing to to consider and tolerate. Okay, so you're a popular technology speaker, of course. How has increased access to tech and the popularity of platforms like Twitter and YouTube shaped uh, shaped the ways that we consume business information to learn and develop in our careers? Yeah, I think you know I, I'm dazzled with the changes of technology. I love I love the advent of new technology, and I, I think you know d- dismiss it at our peril. There's clearly downsides. Personally, I would love a great deal more regulation. I would love, uh, I don't personally think that we should be subject to the whim of billionaires. And so uh, in democratic societies, we should have, uh, we should have accountability and we should have uh, some degree of leverage over these platforms. But that aside, you know, whatever platform it is, I think they definitely bring some upsides and some downsides. And, you know, that might be bringing 
lessons in far easily uh, more packaged uh, content or, you know, bringing us access to things that we would never have access to before. We'll be right back to this conversation after this brief sponsor message. All Voices is an employee feedback management platform that helps companies create and maintain healthy cultures by making it easy to collect, manage, and resolve employee feedback. Users can identify ideas and catch culture issues in real time, reducing turnover and recruiting costs. Because when employees and employers all feel heard and belong, it won't be long before your company culture reflects your values. Learn more at allvoices.co. Okay, let's get on to a uh, key theme in uh, your new book and other books that you've written in the past and a lot of things you talk about generally, and that's resilience. Uh, and here's a quote for you, or from you, sorry. Um, it's part of my homework. I was going through your LinkedIn profile, looking at your recent posts, uh, a little bit like a fanboy, I guess, Bruce. Um, and uh, here's a quote that, uh, that I got from you, and it is as follows. The, the growing demand that we need some resilience training has led to a surge in the number of well-being organizations offering it. But as I spent two years writing a book on resilience, I was struck by the number of times people told me that the resilience course they were sent on did absolutely nothing for them. Um, can you can you maybe suggest how and why resilience training can fail? Yeah, the, the critical thing is that it's a fund, fundamental misdirection. Um, we'll, we've been looking for the answers in the wrong places. And what happens is that individuals come into their employers and they say they're feeling low and, and burnt out and worn down. <clears throat> and what we seek to do in that instance is we seek to find a solution um, that would resolve it for an individual. And it's, it seems like a logical conclusion. The, the danger of that is that it does two things. It, it blinds us to the cause of the problem. So, you know, if someone is coming in to a leader saying they feel burnt out, we might beg to ask ourselves the question, what is it that has burnt them out? And, you know, understanding that would be a critical first step. And if we're candid about that, well, the average working day went up two hours a day in the course of the last 15 years as we as we took emails onto our mobile phones. And then since the pandemic, it's gone up by another 45 minutes. So the average working day has gone up by three hours a day in the course of the last 18 years. It's no wonder they're feeling burnt out. To some extent, it's a degree of victim blaming. If someone's coming into you saying they're feeling burnt out and you're saying, oh, there must be something wrong with you, effectively, you're blaming someone who is the is demonstrating maybe the expected outcome for a hugely increased workload. But the, I think the, the critical thing comes when we're, we're thinking about the resolution for it. So resilience has got this sort of charming quality to it, this bounce back ability, this capacity to recharge, to get back up and start again. And, you know, no doubt it's an incredibly appealing idea. We love it in sports people. We love it in movies, characters, you know, someone who's, who's never defeated by the, the knocks that they take. But I think the, the, the critical question for all of us is where does that strength come from? And so if we look at people in the wild who demonstrate resilience, what we find is that there's actually a very different um, aspect that sits at the core of it. So, you know, I always find right now, the moment we're in right now, you have to think of the people in Ukraine as resilient. 
you know they've got this remarkable um demand upon them this this heavy hideous expectation on them and yet all of them were when presented with the demands that they would go and sign up and start fighting these were office workers these were factory workers these were park keepers they all took up arms and started fighting and certainly i don't think i'd be alone in saying that if the call came for me i'm not sure i would readily have the strength to get up and go and do it and so the question becomes well how come all of these people had it well the clues in the question it's because it's a collective response they feel emboldened by the people around them they feel like i'm part of something this is this is core to who we are this is our identity we're gonna we're gonna protect who we are right now and as soon as you notice that in that origin resilience was a collective strength not an individual strength as soon as you observe that you start thinking oh have i been misdirected to imagine that resilience was this individual thing that some of us had the switch to turn it on and others other of us didn't i checked a friend of mine and during the pandemic she'd been sent on a resilience training course and uh and i said to her oh, how was it she said it didn't work and you know none of us who've been sent on it think it works and so we're almost looking for this individualistic resilience and and not teaching people how to find it if we tell people the way to feel resilient is is to build yourself a strong supportive network with the people around you who you know you can depend on and you can depend on them um uh, if if we told people that then it would be far truer to the evidence that presents itself to us so i think you know i find that when you delve into some remarkable stories of when people have been given demands like these are really fascinating um american social scientist who passed away a couple of years ago and his life's work was studying mass panic that is sort of going into the epicenter of earthquakes going into the uh, the, the sort of the ruins of of natural disasters and going to ask people wow describe to me when you know the big explosion happened describe to me this describe to me when the earthquake struck and he says you never saw any instances of mass panic what you found was that this incredible democratizing process people would report that the the barriers between them and the strangers around them had been knocked down and they all set about this collectivist response um and you know again resilience is the strength that we draw from other people and as soon as you start noticing it you think why have we fallen into the trap of of thinking that resilience is this individualistic strength so that has become my obsession really uh, last couple of years trying to understand why we've got this toxic version of resilience and how on earth can we we shake it um shake ourselves away from it we will return to this conversation after this quick message from our sponsoring partner Trusted by more than 19,000 employers and 8 million employees, Celeric Systems produces software utilized by employers, brokers and carriers to facilitate employee engagement, benefits administration, and Affordable Care Act ACA, reporting tools. The flexibility of the Celeric's Ben Select platform accommodates both core and voluntary insurance products with ease. Our software is licensed and used by carriers, brokers, and employers. Learn more at Celerix.com. Okay, so are you suggesting that you can't be resilient if you don't have a support network? So if, for example, someone loses a close family member, 
um, the the lessons that they've been taught as a kid, as a young person in, in their general life. Um, that can't get them through that kind of situation unless they've got a support network. So, so while the origin of resilience is collective, that's not to say that you can't have examples. There are two other pillars of resilience that really sit at the heart of it. But I would, I would consider them to be secondary. The first one is the locus of personal control. And this is critical, you know, anytime that we feel control or a lack of control over circumstances, it's hugely predictive for the way that we're feeling. You know, if you look into examples of this, if you give people no uh, control over time or over resources that they're, they're free to deploy, they very quickly go into a state of helplessness. And, you know, right now in Europe, we're thinking a lot about cost of living crisis, cost of pretty much everything we're we're paying for is going up. A lot of people are looking a few months down the road thinking, I can't afford to pay for all the things that I'm I'm expected to pay. And so as, as a result of that, they go into a state of panic. They've got no sense of control. Um, in the flip side, if you want to get some more resilience, some more fortitude, then increasing your ability to have control is critical. Now, let's imagine that from a workplace point of view. One of the things that might put you in a helpless state is that you open your calendar and you've got back-to-back meetings. So one of the things that might push back against that is you agree with your boss, okay, Monday afternoon, you don't have to attend some of those meetings, or you've got freedom to decline two or three hours worth of meetings a week. So you can focus on getting your work done. So I think the more that we get small elements of personal leverage, the more that they also give us resilience. The final strand, so I mentioned that the really the three strands of resilience of fortitude are um, this strong sense of community, and that's the, the bedrock, a, a strong sense of agency, person, personal control. And then the third is a clear sense of identity. And we see that the more that we're able to know ourselves, the more that we able to feel confident in our skin, it has a transformational impact on our sense of self and our sense of uh, mental well-being. Okay, thank you very much. Let's talk a bit about your new book now, Bruce. Uh, your latest book is Fortitude, Unpicking the Myth of Resilience, and it was released in August 2022. That's a couple of months ago as we record this interview today. Um, it's a Sunday Times bestseller, listeners. Uh, that's that's how super famous Bruce is already, and, and yet he agreed to be on my show. Um, and it focuses on uh, uh, the notion of resilience and uh, explains how it really works and puts forward a new program for building self-confidence and tenacity, uh, and you call that fortitude. Uh, we're going to get into some of the key focus areas in just a moment, but just at a high level, can you, can you tell me a bit about the book and why you wrote it? Uh, the, the critical reason why I wrote it is that I felt that there was just this sea of resilience chat everywhere. We went from schools that are just completely um, suffused with it to, through to workplaces that we find that everyone is being given the demand to be more and more resilient. And yet uh, maybe they're finding that they don't necessarily have access to that resilience themselves. So I wanted to unpick it, get inside it, try and understand what any of us could do to feel more resilient, try and demystify this conversation, really try and get to the heart of what is resilience and how can any of us feel it? What does, for example, access to to YouTube mean for folks who are looking to develop themselves, develop their careers by by being able to, you know, quick quickly watch a twelve minute video on X and and add that to 
to their micro learning schedule? What, what, what can that potentially mean for somebody's career? The fact that anyone can access these things is incredibly democratic. So, um, you know, most critically, we've always had uh, limits to what people could learn and how. And I think, you know, it's intriguing. Uh, you'll be familiar with the bit of work that suggests in the last 30 years, IQ has actually gone up because there's far more access to knowledge and certain facets, nuanced facets of knowledge that weren't there before. So um, strongly in favour of it and let's re regulate it so it works better. You have a podcast and I always love to give a bit of love to, to our fellow podcasters when I have them on my show. Your podcast is called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Tell me all about it. Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat is a podcast about workplace culture, psychology and life. I'm really fascinated with the intersection of work and our lives. And, and specifically, I'm interested in how any of us can make a more motivated, enjoyable, laughter-filled version of work. So, you know, my objective is to try and get to the bottom of that, to try to understand uh, what the secrets of good work are and, and make sure that we can find our way to making them accessible for everyone. Awesome. And just finally for today, how can our listeners connect with and learn more about you? Very discoverable on social media. and But the, the quickest way is to go to the website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. And uh, I should just encourage folks to also check out your book, get a copy of it. I'm sure it's on places like Amazon. Uh, there will be links in the show notes so they can learn more about that. Uh, but that just leaves me to say for today, Bruce, thank you very much for being my guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thank you so much. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Chat Podcast. There are hundreds of conversations with business experts available for free on the HR Gazette website, Apple, Spotify, and all the main platforms. And remember to like, subscribe, and follow us on social media.